Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Friday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is November 12th. Andy, how we doing? Brendan, I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, I'm a little tired. I'm, I have a little bittersweet moment here. I'm, I'm down in the dungeon. This will be the last Shotgun Start recorded in the dungeon. Dungeon crew, yeah. The good news, though, is that I've got my uh, blazing fast Chicago uh, internet. I'm out of D.C. I'm out <laughs> yeah. of the... the just the the clogged Wi-Fi up wires, sucker. yeah, and the wobbly wires, the clogged wires, all the things of the, the infrastructure of DC. You're incredibly grainy right now. My Wi-Fi is struggling along, but yours is better now that you got out of your DC hotel room. We apologize for the Wednesday episode being cut short. Actually, we don't apologize. You know, whatever. It was discounted. It was half off. Um, you didn't have to pay as much for that one as you normally do, and you got some some insight some jokes some analysis i told you had your 6 a.m flight was the coffee shop open in the airport oh. for your 6 a.m flight well there was a coffee shop open i couldn't believe it the dunkin donuts wasn't open didn't you know it was the first one i walked by i was just i just needed coffee of course i, I you know there was a coffee maker in my room but i yeah. you i i um exhausted, exhausted by cups the, sure <laughs> God. So I, I was making one, and I realized I didn't have a cup. Oh and no! And then I get to the get to the uh, airport, and I'm like, "All right, well, I'll get something there." I walk by Dunkin' Donuts, doesn't open till six. I mean, what are In we the doing? Airport. What are, are, what are you doing every day? There's flights at six. <laughs> Probably a thousand people walk by that before it opened. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, so you're back. We are recording this early. Again, this is uh, absolutely not close to November 12th. It's Wednesday, November 10th, and we're being realistic. But that time doesn't matter for the intro. We have a great guest today. It's Ben Rothenberg, tennis writer, tennis podcaster. We had uh, John Ezekowitz, among others, said, um, you know, there's a ton of similar issues, similar structural, I don't know, I don't know if it's challenges, structural similarities yeah similarities similarities to golf you should talk about this talk about tennis ben is a great guest and i thought it was interesting so much going on on how they're organized and there's a couple differences which i'll wait you you know i won't spoil here um where they really diverged from the current conversation in golf where maybe the mo the rainmaker should be making an even bigger cut of the pie, and maybe that's why a PGL or an SLG should exist. So it was SLG. good having whatever it is, Saudi league, Saudi league golf, isn't that what it's called? We I just started calling SGL. it SGL. No, I think it is SLG, but there, maybe it's live. Maybe it's just live now. Live golf with Slugger. They got a whole. They got a whole cabal now. Old Slugger boy. Yeah. Uh, I mean. As How much do you think Slugger's getting paid? I couldn't even begin 
to guess. What do you seven think? seven figures? I was I was gonna say like pushing that. Maybe like eight fifty seven hundred. Yeah, something like that. But what's he doing? He's just making up rules for a tournament. What if there's what if there's never a tournament conducted? That's true. That's true. I as someone pointed out, friend of the program pointed out they're making a bunch of hires for people of people who are available, right? It's not like they're picking off. It's like guys at home, I'm not saying they're in, not distinguished. It's people have done things in their lives and been places, but like Norman's just walking around putting letters in people's mailboxes. You know, Slugger's I mean, hanging like, out. It's not like they're, getting, they're attracting two podcast hosts that have, you know, a, a, a mediocre podcast. Like, they aren't attracting people like us. They're they're getting guys that are sitting on their couch. We're busy enough. I don't know. <laughs> this was news. We talked about it, whatever, two weeks ago or something. I thought we mentioned this down here. I, I thought this was amazing. He's buddies with Norman. That was the whole backstory. He's super tight with Norman. Adam Shupak, we shared an old guy, Yoakum. Uh, anecdote or a uh, uh, excerpt from an interview with Guy Yoakum, the slugger one where he infamously said, "I want to take food off people's tables so I don't issue slow play." This just completely got buried. Did you you know where I'm going with this? No, with Norman. It's bizarre. So this is Golf Digest. Yoakum, my shot. Greg Norman is a good friend of mine. A while back, he asked me if I'd like to caddy for him in the Australian Open. I explained to Greg that it was a long haul, but he said, "Don't worry." Next thing I know, I'm in his private plane, along with Greg's manager, Bart Collins, and we're en route from Florida to Denver. Greg joined us there, and we refueled the plane. Greg served us. This is Slugger. Greg served us a delicious meal and said, it's best to sleep on the way. I'm going to tuck you in. His plane has bed, and as he personally tucked the blankets in around me, he produced some kind of sleeping pills. And said, how many of these do you need? How weird is this? This sounds very weird. I'd never taken sleeping pills, so Greg suggested I take two. Next thing I know, I opened the window shade and we're in Hawaii. I yawned. I used the bathroom, went back to bed. I woke up in Australia, completely refreshed. It was like being in a time machine. I have 3.5 million lifetime miles on Delta. I'm accustomed to traveling well, but when you travel with Greg, it's a completely different experience. Can you imagine being on a private plane and Greg Norman's tucking you in and give, offering you pills? Slipping you, slipping you. At least he didn't what? slip on pills. Like, I, I thought for a second it was going to be, next thing I knew, I woke up and I, you know. <laughs> you were God. in Riyadh. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, they're now in with the Saudi League golf. Uh, Greg, a uh, slugger. There was other, like, marketing or communications folks that were announced. I, I don't know. There's no players. No events. But they're they're filling up the the front offices, and pretty soon they'll have a global home with no tour, maybe a smaller mode of some sort, and only ten meeting spaces. I don't know, but they're 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 making hires. Slugger, it's like being a content organization with ten hires and no content. Hey, real talk. <laughs> That's a pretty turncoat bullshit move. I have no, I have no, I have no skin in the game. I, wow, I, you're I have calling no out your guy, Slugger. slugger. But I mean, like, I don't know. Guy worked on the tour his whole life, and now he's gone. And you know he's what's going the great right to thing? The thing is trying to take it down. It's just because Norman gave him some pills and it tucked him in once. I don't know. Here's the, just the the great thing is the guy's probably getting paid a fat PGA Tour pension. Yes, and then he's double dipping. He's getting paid by both tours. 
Well, that's the whole thing. Like, so Phil, the belief is, you know, Phil wants a big last check, right? I mean, isn't he set to earn this, like, nine-figure pension? Like, just constant influx of cash from the tour he's trying to take down? I don't know. It's just, maybe he wants both. He's going to take both. I don't know. It it just, that feels like a, uh, I don't know. It's all leverage, I'm sure. Anyway, Slugger is now with the Saudis. Uh, other other world golf new, news. As we sit here on Wednesday, again, disclaimer, many things could happen by the time this was released. Also, you know, Houston Open, also, all this, this stuff. wasn't covered in the, the Wednesday episode. Yes. The European Tour is now the DP World Tour. Do you have a reaction? A lot of inappropriate jokes. I don't, I, I don't have... I, I guess this, DP is a logistics company. It's a multinational logistics company based in, I think it's the Emirates. Uh, so they're straight. I don't know what the deal is with these logistics companies just having all the money to get into golf and only wanting to get into golf, except where they've been browned out in certain tours. Uh, but yeah, DP World Tour. I don't have a strong reaction. I hate to see the European Tour sort of title commercialized in a way. I think it has been a world tour now for many, many years, decades even. You know, they don't go to like continental Europe till like mid-May, it feels like. Uh, I just can't believe they have, they've got like 47 events or something. Some ridiculous amount of events. Way too many. So here's, yeah, 47 tournaments. Minimum two. I mean, this seems, this move seems like a direct shot back at at the Asian tour. Just in timing and association of organ of uh, who's flipping a lot of the bill, you mm-hmm. know, it it just seems, you know, the Asian tour had that two hundred million dollar, you know, um, influx from the Saudis, obviously, and and now you have something very similar for the European tour, make it, you know, upping the the minimum of a purse. Some of the purses were like laughable this year for the European tour. And obviously they were going through some stuff with, with COVID and, you know, sponsors and locations able, unable to play. But this, this seems like a direct kind of um, answer to the Asian tour, potentially being a destination that might steal some players away from them. Yeah. So 27 different countries. Uh, new tournaments, forty-seven events, so, so many. many. Minimums, minimums, two million. New, new events in the Emirates, Japan, South Africa, Belgium. I mean, new here's event a in question. Belgium. We should go to that. You, you can awesome. wear your Illini gear. I bet. I bet if I wore my Illini gear over there, they'd be pumped. You'd be up. a celebrity. You'd be very happy amongst the crowd. Belgium um, and an ex- another Rolex series event. Here's so. the question: Do you think if the if the you know, minimum two million. If they if they cut the events in half and they were all minimum four million, would the tour be in a better place at the end of the Stronger. year? Stronger. I don't know. You'd have a lot of guys bitching about playing opportunities, no? Yeah, you would, but you you know, I think you'd have a lot more talented guys because you'd be week in, week out, because they'd be playing for actual real money. More money. Probably less the travel won't be as onerous, so everybody yeah. shows up to the ones you got. Yeah, uh, like I just sense. don't understand. Everybody's like trying to add tournaments when you could they just. Want... Yeah, 
I, I don't know the business, how that business works that well. Like if it's worth it, just have an event where the purse is, you know, a million dollars. Yeah. But you've had an event and a title sponsor and a opportunity to, for players. I, I don't know where that, that line, that balance tips between it needs to exist or it doesn't need to exist. Uh, anyway, so that's the DP World Tour. Do you have any spicy takes on this? Is there anything super regrettable or lamentable that this has now happened? Like, I hate that there's a title sponsor in it. It's not Hooters. It's not, you know, it's not the Corn Ferry. Uh, it's similar to that, I suppose. I, I just, I, I don't have a strong take on on the rebrand. A lot of people got their jokes off, but hey, it, it's alive and, and continuing on. Thanks to the work of uh, Keith. Don't call me Scott Pelly. Yeah, I, I mean, it sucks. Does it? It just is what it is. It's a it name is. change. I'm not going to go. It doesn't seem like there's a, a it, but there's more money, which is the good thing. Better, better purses. So, um, all right, that does it for news. As of Wednesday, we'll be back on Monday. Let's get to Ben Rothenberg. We, we got to do an what? ad. Oh shoot, we got a new ad for the USGA. We're talking about uh. World golf, you know the, the 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 perilous structures of world golf. Where what, what's well on the pro level, you know, let them split up their big pie. Uh, some people keeping them in check, maybe right, yeah. overseeing regulations of the game. Uh, is the USGA? Do you have the talking points in front of you as I go I searching do. for these? I do. All right, you know, they they uh, everybody knows them as the person, the policeman in the room, the adult in the room. The uh, person administering rules, the handicaps, but they are the biggest investor in golf future. Okay, so they do this through programs like you know their sustainability stuff with helping. Phil's not the biggest investor in golf future. Somebody like surprisingly not. Phil's not. Maybe out for himself. Maybe (laughs) out for adding another fireplace outside or whatever it is he needs to invest in. But yes, the USGA is actually reinvesting. In the game, whether it's fuel, right? Managing water. I was talking to somebody this week about from, I'll just say Southwest. And like, it seems pretty acute. The issues there. All right. With water. So the USGA is working on this for the good, better of all of us across the country. Managing water. Do you know how they do this stuff? What? They do it through the USGA members. That's right. That's right. This, so you get could, your bag tag, get your get your you know hat that yeah. says USGA member on it. I um, I think they still sell send the rules book too. So you can be not like Andrew Landry. You can have your rules book. That was an integral part of my Slugger White costume four years ago, or whatever that was. Three, I had my rules of golf booklet handy that I put in my breast pocket so I could play play Slugger. For Halloween, because I was a USGA member. I am a USGA member. You can go to www.usgaorg.org slash SGS or slash fried egg. You get a U- special USGA member offer. You get uh, 20% a 20% discount. discount in the USGA shop.com. Uh, sign up to be a member of the USGA. I think it's a way to not spend a ton of money, break the bank, and give a shit. Give a care about golf. Help care about the future of golf. People trying to make it better, trying to sustain it uh, going forward. Would you? The other thing is that 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 twenty percent discount in the USGA shop is actually a tangible good good thing to have because they got cool stuff. I've you know 
I've gone in there and patronized the shop in the last year. I got like yeah. a, a Lee Wybranski, uh yeah. poster from yeah. a U.S. Open, and uh, <laughs> I I I happened to catch a I happened to catch my own sale, and I saw uh, there was like a Banded Dunes USAM sweatshirt that I bought that I really like. So it's a cool, it's a good place to go get some uh, get some stuff too. So, so I think by becoming a member, you get something tangible. But I, I feel I honestly, legitimately feel like you're you're not spending a ton of money, but you're investing in something that will hopefully make the game better down the line. So go to usga.org slash fried egg or usga.org slash SGS to get that uh, that 20% discount. All right, let's get to Ben Rothenberg, writer, New York Times, tennis expert, uh, wide ranging discussion, more kind of, you know, edifying us on the game. Trying to set off certain parallels with the challenges and structures that golf face. There's a ton of overlap here. You know, it's, it's not a golf-heavy discussion, but I thought it was super enlightening. I think the audience will appreciate it, as our audience is pretty well uh, educated on the, the current issues in golf and structure of golf. Hearing about it in tennis will be, I think, pretty fun and enlightening. Interesting, at least. Good? Here we go. Let's get Ben Rothenberg. All right, we now welcome in Ben Rothenberg. He is a tennis writer. He is a host of a tennis podcast. I assume our audiences have some overlap. The hosts here, the, uh, the golf hosts here, and the tennis have no overlap. We've already pledged <laughs> ignorance of each other's sports. Uh, but Ben hosts the No Challenges Remaining podcast. He's an editor of Racket Magazine. He contributes to New York Times tennis writing. Be ben, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brendan. Uh, oh, and you can find him on Twitter. What's your handle? Is it just at Ben Rothenberg? At Ben Rothenberg, yeah. That makes sense. Easy. You know, you're lucky. Yeah. You know, Andy Johnson, at Andy Johnson, it's never going to be available. That's tough. Uh, so, Ben, what we wanted, we wanted to have you on. Several astute listeners suggested we have you on because there are, I don't know, structural questions, issues facing tennis. Uh, everybody, you know, has a solution maybe to a problem that doesn't exist or, or people trying to innovate for just the sake of innovation. I don't know. Uh, we've already said we, we don't know much about tennis, so we kind of want you to explain it like you are to a five-year-old, the current structure of tennis, men's, women's, the tours, what challenges and, it may be facing. We'll obviously go into these. And to, and to preface, you know, obviously tennis and golf are uh, were two of the few individual sports yeah oh and they're often contract. paired together i mean like, people talk about tennis and golf like they're the same thing or like they're both like country club sports or whatever the sort of grouping is people lump them together they both have you know four majors and things like yeah that. there's a lot in the tours and both have men's and women's separate tours there's a bunch of different parallels you could find between tennis and golf on the sort of surface level well for sure let's start start with the very very basic what okay. is the current structure of professional tennis how is it ordered and then we can get into challenges or whatever how is it currently ordered so the short version of that is tennis is governed by a lot of different governing bodies that's sort of the main sort of structural problem so there's basically refer to i refer to sometimes as like the seven kingdoms of tennis that each have their own sort of stake in it which are the men's tour which is the atp the women's tour which is wta each of the four Grand Slams has the main over their own, each of their four Grand Slams. So Tennis Australia for the Australian Open, French Tennis Federation for Roland Garros, Wimbledon, and then the U.S. Uh, Tennis Association, that's the U.S. Open. And then there's also the International Tennis Federation, the seventh one, which sort of is the governing body for the sport that handles like anti-doping and also runs the Olympic side of tennis and does Davis Cup and Fed Cup, which was recently renamed Billie Jean King Cup. Um, <clears throat> and does the lower lowest level pro tournaments as well, like that they call the futures events, the fifth, like ones where the prize pools are pretty tiny. Um, 
So that's the main structural thing. And then the issue is getting all those people to cooperate and, and not be in conflict with each other or not be too territorial with each other. And that's where pretty much all tennis's problems stem from some degree of lack of cooperation or occasionally outright conflict between the, between any number of those seven kingdoms in some permutation. Um, so the, basically the, the tours, the ATP and WTA manage the rankings. They assign ranking points for players and, and for how much each tournament uh, result will be worth. And those determine a player's ranking and also in those rankings determine who gets into each event. It's not like golf where you have tour cards. There's no equivalent to that in tennis. Um, coming off at any point, you are want there to exa- Are there exemptions in tennis? So we have wild cards. I'm not sure if that's exactly the same thing, but basically, like, if you want to let, like, Andy Murray, for example, who's, like, coming back from injuries, yeah. has been getting tons of wild cards while he's outside top 100 to play, uh, in tournaments, his ranking wouldn't qualify him for directly. I think that's, again, this is, I'm not yeah. 100% sure what no. exemption means mm-hmm. in golf. It seems but, pretty analogous, quite honestly. Yeah. Uh, so how are they well, getting, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, how, go. Are they, how are they getting along right now? Those organizations? <laughs> is it a current, you said outright conflict? Is it tension? Is it agreement? The, the main sort of recent development on that is that the WTA and ATP have been combining some forces during the uh, pandemic, mostly behind the scenes. They And they already have a lot more overlap than they do in golf. Like There's a ton of combined yeah. tournaments between the two tours that I don't think there really are any of in terms of simultaneous combined tournaments on the golf tour. Uh, there's probably about, out of like the 50-something tour events, there's probably about uh, 15 or 20 that are combined, whereas men and women playing simultaneously. Uh, on the tours, including many of the biggest tournaments. Uh, obviously, the Grand Slams, uh, men and women play simultaneously. Then also the big American tournaments like Indian Wells and Miami are the two biggest events today. It's in Cincinnati. It's another big one that's uh, also a combined event. So that's one thing. Uh, but then they're already doing things like doing more behind the scenes sort of staff sharing, like having combined communications teams and writing, you know, mm-hmm. news articles that get posted to both websites and stuff. And that sort of stuff seems minor, but that's seems like a Herculean amount of progress in tennis, considering how completely siloed and isolated those sort of ventures were uh, in recent years, pre-pandemic. Just before we move off this and kind of get to the parallels, is there one in tennis that is, is there like a ranking, a priority of, of who has the most power? And I know that can be a very subjective thing. I guess what I would say in golf, like nobody tells Augusta National, uh, the Masters, yeah. how it's going to be or what they're going to do ever. Um, and I think people would probably say who would be Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, I think they would probably say they they. I don't know if the most power, but I, I would certainly say they have the the biggest carrot maybe as a Masters invite. Whereas you know the other organizations have carrots and, and sort of areas of authority. Is there one in tennis that if you could sort them and order them? So I think things are a little bit more standardized in tennis than in golf in terms of invites, like because yeah, Augusta, Masters is an invitational, I guess, yep. or maybe it's yep. some ranking cutoff for that is an invitational. I'm not totally sure how that works, but. For the four majors, basically everybody who's within roughly the top like 110 in the rankings, uh, in the world gets in directly to the Grand Slam draws, the main draws. Um, and then there's qualifying for lower ranked players. And that's pretty uniform standardized across the four Grand Slams. Um, there's certainly, so I don't know if there's not really one holdout. I mean, Wimbledon does have the most sort of, uh, anachronisms, you know, of having, you know, it's all white dress code and yeah. being played on grass, which is a pretty, uh, rare surface. It's largely ob- obsolete elsewhere on the tour, except for the couple tournaments that lead into Wimbledon that the players play to try to get prepared for Wimbledon. Um, but generally, yeah, it's the, the it's more about there just being differences between a lot of the you know 
things behind the scenes too, like TV rights deals and stuff. Like each of those Grand Slams holds its own TV rights deal. And like, for example, the French Open is on NBC and it's the only tennis tournament on NBC every year. There just happens to be one uh, Grand Slam there, which which a lot of people think uh, in the sport that really hurts the earning power of the sport to have the rights deals also divided up, that they're not bundled together, which people think would be a more uh, potentially more valuable product. But everything is really pretty ad hoc. Okay. How how does the uh, how does the disparity in pay for players vary across all these different organizations? So it's a complicated question. I mean, there's a bunch of different. So basically, players like in golf get prize money for you only. There's mm-hmm. no base, and they're purses. Yeah, there's right. purses. There's no there's no base salary in tennis um, for players. Um, you get money based on how many matches you win at a tournament. Um, one of the big trends in recent years has been giving more money to players for losing in earlier rounds and trying to shift more of the money towards players relatively lower in the rankings. And that's actually something, one of the main differences between tennis and golf payouts that I've seen is that golf tends to have way sort of a, a much steadier sort of prize money slope down. Whereas in tennis, basically your prize money roughly, at least, it, it used at least let's say five years ago, used to roughly double every for every round you won. So like the winner of a tournament, like the U.S. Open was listed a big one. Maybe the winner got three million dollars, and then the runner-up would get one and a half, and then the semifinals would get seventy-five, seven hundred fifty thousand, and then sort of having yeah. down there from all the way down to roughly I don't know, like fifty thousand for the people who lose in the first round, um, and then okay. sort of the switch has been lately to give more money to people losing in earlier rounds. Um, most of the players make most of their money off of the Grand Slams, uh, which are those it's a bigger pots even though there's only four tournaments out of the year and most players will play between 20 and 25 tournaments a year but the the grand slams are the big big payday so the big thing going on right now in golf and there are these sort of incursions or these proposals disruptors from some of its saudi backed some of its you know theoretical maybe Mm -hmm. I i don't know proposal the social media presentations powerpoint presentations that they're, they're trying to expose a weakness where the top, the rainmakers in the game aren't fairly, aren't getting the fair share of the pie. There's a field of 132 players or 150 players, and basically people are buying tickets or TV rights deals are being done on 10 of them or 15 or, or five. And Tiger is an outlier. Tiger Woods is an all time outlier. Does tennis have this sort of, they're all independent contractors in tennis. Am I, is that That's right? Mm hmm. Um, do they have this sort of this issue where uh, the rank and file a are, are cutting into the earnings of the top dogs and there's alternate or proposals or is it the opposite? It's more the opposite. I think more definitely okay. the public conversations are that the guys who were lower ranked and less marquee names deserve more money. And there's this sort of conversation about how many people should be able to make a living from playing tennis. Like what is the sort of break even point on the tour? Because again, yeah. like said, there's no tour cards. So there's no, which is basically just like you get to a certain ranking and you can get into bigger tournaments. And that's very fluid uh, throughout the course of a, a year. There's a 52 rank, 52 week, you know, rolling ranking cycle. So your ranking points from tournaments, which has changed, just frozen a little bit during the pandemic. But generally, your events the last 52 weeks count towards your ranking. Um, so you can move up or down pretty quickly uh, with a big result or with a big result from a year ago falling off your ranking. Um, so, but most of the conversation has been about helping low rank guys, including players like Novak Djokovic, who's number one and has earned by far the most prize money in career of anybody. He's been sort of pub- publicly the, pushing like for a, that. 
say Djokovic, who obviously had you know great year last year. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the what's the earnings that he's gonna make this year from you know on uh, on court earnings? Um, actually, I feel like I should look that up because I don't want to get that totally wrong. But I think he's probably in the in the range of generally like a good year for Djokovic is somewhere in the range of like a little under twenty million dollars in prize money. Well, but he, inter- but he's so that's interesting. Like the best golfer, if you take out, they have the, these bonuses. Yeah. But just just straight on cor- course earnings would be around six, yeah. maybe. Okay, right? so probably. I was actually way over. So that's good. <laughs> Djokovic this year has earned about eight million. Um, okay. But he okay. also hasn't played a very full schedule. He's getting older. He hasn't played. He's mostly just played the Grand Slams. He won the first three Grand Slams of the year. Made the final mm-hmm. U.S. Open and hasn't played that much between that. But he's made one hundred fifty-three million in his career. Um, so he's averaging more than 80 a year for sure. But the other thing okay. in tennis that we, I guess, I don't know if you have this in golf is that um, you probably do. Certainly for someone like Tiger is there's appearance fees for the biggest players to play tournaments. Um, only some. So, so that's like the main, one of the main ways that players in the top 10 will get the money above and beyond. So that's sort of where their value comes in. You know, like in terms what are of those, how substantial are those? They appearances? can be pretty big. So players like even like, so like a top five ish sort of player. To play, like, let's say, immediate, they don't happen at the biggest tournaments. There's no appearance fees at Grand Slams. There's no appearance okay. fees generally at the Masters events, which are the nine tournaments in the, on the ATP that are the next rung down. But for tournaments below that, like a player like Federer, let's say, who's the biggest star in tennis, would probably get around $2 million for showing up to a okay. smaller tournament. Um, and that would be Is way that- more than the available prize money at that tournament, usually. Like, you could probably win, like, let's say, like 200000 for winning the tournament, but it gets $2 million to show up. Interesting. Interesting. Go ahead, Andy. What's the what's the discourse been around how many players should be able to make a living playing tennis? And in what I'd love to hear more about that because you know golf's in a state where you finish, you know, you keep your card, which is you know a, an annual thing. So imagine, I imagine keeping your card would be the number that gets you into kind of and pretty much all the tournaments, right? Yeah. For the tennis, so maybe you're 100 on the rank list. They're making $1 million a year. Well, tennis players cover, as they'll tell you, they cover a lot of their own expenses and obviously paying for coaches, paying for equipment, for travel, um, sometimes for lodging, although usually tournaments cover lodging at most tournaments. Um, generally, people think that around the top 150 players are making some money, maybe, maybe 100 even, if it turns on, depends on how much they're spending on expenses. Um, and then people are not are failing to break even probably somewhere around 300 in the world in the rankings. Um, and and there's been a sort of conversation like, oh, that should be greater. But no one really has necessarily an explanation for how those lower ranked players, how, how, how low that should go in terms of who, how many people should make a living on tennis. Um, and also the cutoff is a little bit higher for, for women because women don't make as much money in prize money. Most term, the, the grand tennis famously has equal prize money at the Grand Slams. And a couple yeah. other um, mm-hmm. big events, but for the most part, women still make less money at the rank and file tour events uh, than the men do. Uh, so, yeah. So, I'm not sure I'm answering this perfectly, but no, basically, yeah. there's uh, yeah, sort of conversation on how to get more money to the lower ranks, and usually that winds up being paying more money to people who lose like first round of the U.S. Open, which I don't personally love. I think they should just spread it down to more lower level tournaments and just reward people for losing first rounds at a big event. Like how how thin is it at the lower ranks that you have these these Djokovic types saying we're not giving them enough? There's not enough. Like, is it is it hard to 
I mean, make a living because based on those expenses, because you very much see the opposite direction going in yeah. golf right now. Oh, for sure. No, definitely. If you're like a player, let's say right, like 200 in the world, you're probably making enough money. You would be then getting into the qualifying draws for the Grand Slams. And so you would have these chances of having big paydays that could really sort of keep your year afloat if you win three matches in the qualifying draw to get a spot in the main draw and get one of these like, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100,000 first round payoffs for first round loser to Grand Slam. Uh, but generally, like if you go to a, a challenger event, which are the next level down, you know, the winner of the tournament probably gets around $12,000 for winning the tournament. And the first round losers get probably in the range of like 500, which is going to mean you're losing money for that week, almost certainly based on your airfare and whatever other expenses you have, especially if you're trying to have a coach. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's different, obviously, there's a lot of different extenuating factors in terms of how players secure funding players from some of the more uh, robust tennis nations, including the US, including that the Grand Slam countries generally like so France and UK and Australia uh, players from those countries often get more funding from their national countries tennis federation uh, to sort of support their careers in their as they're in their fledgling states other players will find sponsors or private sponsors or benefactors you know a lot of just interested rich people who will help sort of keep a tennis player afloat to live vicariously through their success um, yep that's a common thing and so through their success um, that's a common thing and um Again, like, but those players also, no one's watching their matches. You know, like, no right. one's, no yeah. one's going to those tournaments. I mean, they are getting some money from some shooting rights, some gambling data rights is a big growing sector in tennis. Sure. Um, that's one of the main ways those players probably produce revenue for the tour. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, because it is a for profit business, obviously, in entertainment, you know, sports is entertainment yeah. business largely. If those are players who aren't being watched, like, does the number 200, does the 250th best tennis player in the world deserve to make a living from that and they'll point to you know you know the nba or nfl or you know let's say it, you know i don't know like nba oh let's say hockey is another math is easier for that like in hockey like there's 20 players on each of the 32 uh rosters who are each making you know like at least a million dollars roughly a year um and mm-hmm. that's like 600 people and so they're saying i'm number 150 in tennis in the world and why are there so many fewer jobs than that but tennis has always been really really star driven and really top heavy and you see that, and that, yeah. it, and that probably drives the rights conversations, right? And the the fact that you're not bundled, everybody's not unified and bundled together when they look at a sport like N- the NHL, where all these players make, uh, you know, one million dollars mm-hmm. or more, and you know, you look at the, you know, the kind of division throughout it, and you know, the different rights deals that all probably have different levers and, and the money gets distributed differently across all these things. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly it gets every, you know, every little, like I said, those seven kingdoms, each have their own sort of wedge of the pie. And so the USTA will do its own things with its earnings for US Open rights. And it's not going to share them with the other tours and we'll keep it funding into various American tennis projects. And it's similar elsewhere. It's very balkanized in that sense. If in golf, it's the, the five families, not the seven kingdoms. <laughs> yeah. We have that's, um, I guess you, you mentioned it quickly. I, I wanted to hit on this because it's always pressing in golf. How did the majors get equal purses? And, uh, was it just yeah. so much a, we're going to do this? Did the, the, each organization have to split it evenly? Like, cause those, they are very unequal, uh, in golf. Still. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it happened uh, pretty gradually over the okay. course of like, 30-something years in tennis. Uh, it started with the U.S. Open in 1973. The U.S. Open, for the first time, offered equal prize money, and it was actually um, Billie Jean King, who was one of the leading women's players at the time, yep. was, was very famously a 
um, you know, fighting for a lot of feminist causes and played the battle of sexes against Bobby Riggs and stuff. And it was part of the wider women's movement at that time. Um, and had a lot of energy behind that. And they, she actually, for the very first year, got a sponsorship, uh, from, uh, band deodorant, the deodorant company. And they said, and had something like, they had some slogan like, unequal prize money stinks or something. And so band supplied the money to even the purses. They make up the difference between the men's women purses. And after that, I think maybe the, maybe the very next year, the USDA sort of picked it up and, and made it even there. But it wasn't basically until, so that was since 1973. It wasn't until 2007 that Wimbledon first offered equal prize money. So there was a long lag uh, between the two. Um, and the Australian Open had it in the 80s and then undid it and then re-brought it back, I think, around 99. The French Open did it right around the same time Wimbledon, like 06, um, just sort of public pressure mounting. And it's obviously very different from golf because in, in tennis, you know, the TV deals for the for the majors are sold for men and women together. And you have yeah. most tickets for most days at Grand Slams, certainly the first like 10 days of the tournament of most of the Grand Slams, you're going to see men and women on the same ticket, often playing back-to-back matches on the same court. It's much more of a joint uh, package uh, of getting yeah. the two together than it would be for the men and women who, like I said, I don't think there's any, there's very few tournaments, if any, at the tour level where men and women are, you know, teeing up and playing on the course at the same time. This is a, just a sidebar question. Has there ever been an attempt by uh, by one of the seven kingdoms to uh, to push a tournament into major status that wasn't one of the four? <laughs> it has not come that close, really, in tennis. Uh, I know, obviously, okay. I know women's golf has a fifth major now. Um, yeah, but the no, the, the one that gets talked about most is if there's uh, potential for it to happen with like the China Open, which is a uh, tournament and that's obviously been sort of scuttled by um a whole different issue during the pandemic of china shutting off as a market which is a huge part of the footprint of the tour for women's tennis especially recently um they had a lot of big tournaments there that have evaporated suddenly um that was one that gets talked about but no i think the, the idea of four grand slams of tennis is pretty pretty baked in um in australia they do a lot of sort of scare tactics with their with their national government saying like oh my gosh if you don't give us unlimited money we're gonna have to move to china and like that's sort of their way of of putting the, the specter of a of another major or a shift in that, but no, those footprints have been pretty pretty firm in tennis for the last. I think the Australian Open started in the in one of them started well, since like the nineteen twenties. Those four majors, and they haven't always been the four biggest tournaments in the world, but they always have had that sort of um, historic, uh, yeah, sign of that. But no, no, no real fifth major talk. There's there's tournaments that are called colloquially like the fifth Grand Slam, like Indian Wells. Uh-huh. Um, currently probably has that title um as the, the next biggest so, tournament so there's been an influx of cash uh put into the game from asia mm-hmm. and the women's game particularly is there any other parts of the world that uh, they're seeing an uptick in in tennis and, and money that's being put into the game i mean china's really the big one for sure um and then some other parts i mean the middle east has been in tennis for Probably roughly about 20 years. I think it's when okay. Dubai and Doha started getting, uh, tour events. Yep. Um, the, the year end, cha- those, everything in the tennis calendar is pretty rigid, although the year end championships, which are for the top eight players in the rankings in men's women's sides, those rotate locations every three to four years, usually. Um, so Doha did have a, a piece of that for a while on the women's side. Shanghai had some of that for the men, um, about 15 years ago. Uh, but generally, no, it's pretty static geographically the calendar it doesn't change 
that much. And even, you know, like US Open, I'm like golf. The US Open's in the same location every year in tennis. So it's pretty, it's pretty fixed. On the calendar, where do, well, where do a, I guess there's media, fans, players, is there any, are they, everyone okay with the schedule right now? They feel like there's too few events, too many events, too bit, like where, in terms of the calendar, where do people's opinions on that fall right now? The general feeling is that the calendar's too long. Um, yeah. That it runs basically, it's still going. Uh, it, the men's year end championships are next week and we're recording this in mid November. Um, and then there's Davis Cup at the week after that too. And then the tour basically starts back first week of January. So there's really only like six weeks where the tour level events are fully off the calendar and everyone thinks that's, that's too long. Granted, players do have pretty full autonomy over their schedules. They are independent contractors. Right. They can build their own breaks in um, whenever they want. Technically, they won't get paid, but they do have – they and sometimes they'll face fines for not playing enough tournaments, but that's rare. Um, yeah, generally, people think it's too long and want to see it condensed. But they also don't want more mandatory tournaments um, – to be more rigid, so people, players just complain about everything. So, the, so how saying. do those how do those rank and file events stand out? It sounds like golf. Yeah. <laughs> I know, <laughs> complain about everything. It's, it's so much of this sounds so overlaps. Um, how do they? How do if you're a tournament organizer of a non-major? Yeah, you mentioned appearance money. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some regulations on those in golf. Not in the Middle East. You get a lot of players going to the Middle East events. There's appearance money, like. How do you, how do those not, how do those non-major events, your tournament orders, how do you make your, the top guys show up? How are they compelling players to show up? How many matter or truly, how do you get the truly matter outside the major? I mean, I, yeah, to get the really top players, obviously writing the appearance check is a, is a must. You know, like I can say, are like, there American events doing that? Oh, too? yeah, yeah, yeah not, for okay, sure. Like, 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 well, I'm in Washington, my hometown tournament here. Yeah. Washington DC, the city open for the first time this year got Rafael Nadal to play. Right. Um, and so that was like probably 1.5 million. roughly in that range. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And probably get him to show up. And then also, you know, once he's here, he's getting, you know, wine to die and taken out to the golf course. He loves golf. And so he got to go to basically all the big golf courses in DC area and stuff and given sort of VIP treatment and hopes that he'll come back, you know, too. And also, and also that was a situation where he'd been off with injury and he wanted to make it, he was eager to come back to the tour sometime in the calendar around Washington. He would normally never even consider playing Washington just because it's a, it's not a small event. It's a medium sized event, but um, it just wouldn't normally ever be part of his schedule, but it sort of worked for him in terms of his comeback from his, his injuries. And yeah, and it, and it really, but it, that $1.5 million was very well spent for the tournament, assuming it was roughly around there because they got much better ticket sales than they have for the last many years, especially coming out of a pandemic. Um, the tickets, especially for hit sessions, were totally sold out. The tough thing for tennis, also a couple of tough things for that, though, you don't know, you can't plan too far like when he's going to play. You have to find out like where in the draw he lands and if um, and if he keeps winning, too. Because, you know, he, he he lost in his second match. He had a bye in the first round. And he lost. He won the second round then lost in the third round. And so people who bought weekend tickets, you know, to to watch it all would have not gotten to see him. You And even then, you can't sell. You can't guarantee which sessions he's going to appear in. Maybe sometimes the first match you can you can pre-plan for, but generally it's it's tough to to build around that, which is a, a big issue compared to most most sports. Interesting. Hey, can we talk about the psycho uh, Kyrgios? What's Kyrgios? his name? Kyrgios. Psycho. <laughs> He's psycho, but okay. What does he get? Like, uh, does he get fined? Like, what? What he does has these outbursts. Is, is it? Is it like an every match thing that he has outbursts? Like, 
I've I've watched him a few times, and I and, he, and he's you know obviously seems like he's full of talent, but just like never really realizing where what he could do. Uh, he definitely does get fines. There definitely are uh, various code violations you can get, and and different conduct fines. Um, are those public? Uh, for tour events, for Grand Slams, yes, uh, those are made public. For for ATP tour events, generally not. Um, you'd have to kind of you could inquire, and they might give them to you, like if you request them each time. Um, but generally, they're not that big. And most of the stuff he does, you know, there's been some basic, most common fines. Uh, you know, like for breaking a racket or for like cursing uh, audibly, uh, that maybe get you like a fine of like you know a couple thousand dollars here or there. Um, but generally, for the most part, it's sort of he does things that are more sort of like existential crisis kind of things than than things that are written into the rules. And so those don't necessarily uh, have pre-written fines. There's been a, there's been like only a couple times when he's done things that have. Where the ATP has like investigated his behavior in a match. I always think it's a ridiculous term because like everything was on tape. What do you need to investigate? Um, uh, yeah. So so no, but he's he's uh, he's had a rough year actually. Results. He has not played very well this year at all. And his ranking has slipped. I think out maybe a top hundred. Um, so I'm interested to see how he bounces back. Um, all right, back on some of the the structure stuff. Sorry, no, I, no, that's I, fine. To, I wanted to hear. Well, I will, I will say on the, on the structure the stuff. I don't know how much this comes up in tennis, but. And golf, sorry, but tennis is a, a is not good at doing player discipline. It's not a strength. Oh, yeah. On that same note, horrible. No, golf's horrible. Yeah. There's this I, has I happened. A- this has happened this year. Actually, there's you know a case that I've, one thing I investigated actually about uh, one of the top players, a gold medalist uh, Alexander Zverev, who's accused of domestic violence by his ex girlfriend. Yeah, at, during tournament tournaments at tournament hotels, and he's denied this. And it took the tennis pros a very. They didn't have any sort of policy like you know NFL have had for for years on these sorts of sensory rights and these sorts of things, and so. They've been very behind on that and just even sort of man and then sort of distance themselves at times by or people within the tour distance themselves saying, Oh, they're independent contractors and our responsibility or whatever. And, and it's, it's, that's, they get very sloppy on that sort of thing. So that is somewhat relevant to the structure compared to a league that has yeah, a collective got, bargaining agreement that would have those things in it. Right. We've got a guy that got caught visibly like uh, cheating on camera, cheating and denying you cheated. And the tour like kind of backed him up mm-hmm. for the whole. Well, the, thing. the yeah. penalized him, but the members but run they, the, the players run the tour. There's no like it, it is. It's interesting. So the, the the players are all sort of right winners, but they're like trade unionists when it comes to yeah. everybody's got to get a big cut, as we've said, and everybody's got to be taken care of once you're a member. Um, I, I guess what I, the, the, getting into that, I, I thought I saw this summer past year there was talks of a union or a breakaway sort of separate. Yeah tour or, or separate yeah, so group? That's, been, that's been a Novak Djokovic-led initiative. He's this thing, he, organization he started with another player, uh, Vashik Pospisil, is a Canadian player, called the PTPA, which stands for the Professional Tennis Players Association, which basically, so basically the ATP tour, ATP, the, which stands for the Association of Tennis Professionals, started as essentially kind of a players or association sort of union thing. And then in, in 1990, it merged with the Tournament Council to become the ATP tour. Um, which is 50-50 governance, where basically there's a board of six uh, and three tournament representatives, three player representatives, and they vote on issues in deadlock constantly. And um, there's also, and then the, there's a chief executive, the chairman, I forget which position, breaks the ties on the uh, on the board. And so the PTPA has been, it's basically a joke, but she was previously the player council president. Um, breaking away from the uh, sh- written structures of the ATP, thinking the players need an independent voice. Um, 
in order to become, they're not saying it's like PDPA has really had really muddled messaging and it's not making its points very clear. It clearly wants to be some sort of union, but isn't using the word union. And it's trying to, it's trying to say they can work within, you know, work with the tour, even though the tour, which is built and and is structured in its sort of constitution as a 50 50 organization between player interest and, and tournaments. Um, there's no real spot at the table for the PTPA. Um, but they're trying to, he's trying to drum up support for that. And it's not, it's hard. It's on some players buying in really only men. They all, they talked about bringing women on board too, but no women have been approached yet. It's also not clear if maybe they're, they're going to be pushing against equal prize money. Lots of the men still don't support equal prize money. They think the women don't deserve, uh, 50% of the prize money at big events. Why? Um, Why is that? They argue that the men, have bigger crowds or bring in more revenue. Is that true? I mean, I, I, from what I've always understood on the outside tennis, like it just kind of depends on the matchup you get. I men, agree. Women, yeah. or it's not consistent. I mean, like okay. it, it's tough to say, uh, like for example, ratings, U S open the women have had better ratings of the U S open on TV for like consistently for the last five years. Um, and so it, it's, it's tough to put a blanket. Like, yes, that's right. There are yeah. certainly tournaments where in some countries, especially where women's sports aren't as popular, like in Spain, like the crowds in at the Madrid tournament just have equal prize money, uh, are much bigger for the men, no doubt about that. Um, but it's not consistent across the board. Okay. How is uh equipment regulated with with seven different kingdoms? Uh there aren't too many rules about that in terms of that being really an issue that people are trying to push boundaries with equipment in tennis. Interesting. That's not really something that people talk about. And the balls are provided by the tournaments, one thing. So you don't play with your own balls. <laughs> Um, there was some regulation though. Wasn't the ball slowed down uh, years ago? Yeah, so the tournaments, of, the tournaments uh, can, do control that. Um, and definitely, I think the balls have gotten slower and fluffier, heavier, whatever, since 20 years ago when like Pete Sampras was playing uh, 20, 25 years ago. And they are just hitting constantly. Can aces. you explain why, why it was changed? I think it was changed, um, especially in the men's side, because I think people thought tennis was getting boring with too many aces and no rallies. And so slowing down those conditions made for more pleasing uh, to watch product. So, so there were like less shots being hit. Yeah. Basically like, especially if you watch like footage of Wimbledon from the nineties, like it was Pete Sampras or somebody else in his category of player, like hitting a big serve and the opponent either barely. What was re- that guy's name? Ivan, Ivan, or even uh, Gordon Gordon Ivanisevich, yeah, Gordon Ivanisevich, exactly in this category too. Like, like pick a big serve, sixty percent of the time, probably maybe a little more. Like the opponent wouldn't return it at all, or if they did, it was like a weak return that Sampras would hit a volley and end the point right away. Serving volley kind of tennis, Um, and there was yeah, getting away from that. So they definitely starting uh, a little under twenty years ago, they probably they started slowing things down um, and making it so there were more rallies. So players like Nadal and Djokovic, who are baseliners, um, have been able to do well at, at Wimbledon now. In, in past 10 years what what's tennis's stance uh, is there a worry obviously golf's been dominated by tiger woods for for mm-hmm. years um and obviously in phil mickelson but they're aging out similar to tennis's stars mm-hmm. what what is um is there concern with such big icons that are you know eventually who knows how much longer Djokovic is going to keep going but eventually you're going to be out of the game. Oh yeah, I think it's more with Federer and Nadal on the men's side. Djokovic is still there. I don't think he's considered as big a draw um, mm-hmm. as Federer and Nadal, who both have massive, massive followings. Uh, yeah, for sure, it's a concern. And also on the women's side, with like the Williams sisters, uh, 
fading out. The women's side, I think, it's had considered to be in better shape on this. They've had more torch passing moments, you know, with like players like Naomi Osaka uh, coming up and beating Serena in the 2018 US Open final. I think was considered a good transitional moment. The men haven't quite had as many of those where there's the younger generation is showing it's, it's uh, ready to take the torch. Um, so there definitely could be sort of a gap uh, and a reset period in men's tennis, particularly when those top players uh, leave. And also just because the, the numbers they achieved are so nuts. I mean, like the top three winningest in, in terms of most grand slams, one players of all time are in men's tennis are all active right now with, Djokovic and Federer and it all all tied with 20 grand slams. Um, that's going to be a big gap in sort of the, from that level, like the sort of caliber of star power. Um, it's going to be no one, when they retire, no one will have more than one on the tour. They've taken so many. Um, one other thing, what was another sidebar? It, do people feel like the popularity or appeal of the professional game has any impact on the recreational game one way or another. Like if, if somebody has a great, there's a great tournament or a great match, it yeah. has an impact. I think like in golf, people see to like, like recreational golf is just what it is. And, but we're marketed to with, with tiger and yeah. the guys who games who we can't approach is, is there, what's the relationship between those two? Yeah. I don't tend to think there's much relationship. I mean, okay. there is certainly some of, players, um, big stars inspire where people take up tennis. And we've seen, I know this conversation with around Tiger too, but certainly in the U.S., like there is a, a generation on the women's side of African-American players who were directly inspired to play um, by the Williams sisters. And you're certainly seeing that, you know, age-wise now, people who were little kids when the Williams sisters were making their biggest splashes on tour. Are, um, and so there's been a lot more players. But there's also way more black women on tour than black men. I think it's part of it's it's one of the interesting trends that follows on from that uh, example as well. Uh, but no, I don't I don't necessarily think that like a big one final makes you know the public courts full the next day. Yeah, I, I don't really see yeah. that that happening per se. I, I think they're pretty different. I think people who are pro tennis fans, especially like the most hardcore fans, I think there's very little correlation between people who are in that group and people who play recreationally regularly. And there's plenty of really serious rec players who don't follow the pro tour uh, closely at all, and and vice versa. People who follow Tour very closely, but don't play uh, tennis very seriously. There's a huge, been a huge boom in in tennis participation numbers. I've heard during the pandemic, it was considered a, a great socially distanced sport, and lots of people were taking up tennis so, uh, during yeah. the pandemic. Um, if it does someday trickle into more pros developing in, especially in the U.S., where this boom was very pronounced, uh, great. But it, it, that didn't have anything to do with, uh, with what was happening on the pro level. Uh, okay, last one. Is there anything, you know, we've talked about the structure and, you know, certain strengths and weaknesses. Is there anything, I, I think it feels like in golf are right now at a point where the game could be structured and ordered very differently 10 years from now, but it, it just seems like there's legitimate attempts. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in tennis where you could see for better or for worse or just a uh, matter of fact, uh, where the game is, there's some sort of disruption or some sort of Saudi sports washing, whatever it is. Um, something five years from now, 10 years from now yeah. that where the game looks dramatically different because it is, it does seem organized very similarly to golf. Yeah. Right I now. think whether it's, you know, Saudi or whoever else in, in tennis, like I think the biggest sort of opportunity there is for someone, to, some billionaire to sweep in and buy everything to buy all those kingdoms and unite them under one more unified body. Um, and then also there could be things to get away from the structure of, of the tour. This sign that. I think tennis did a really poor job of being flexible up with during the pandemic, you know, to stop having it be a 
a, you know, a scattered group of 50 something tournaments, uh, in different countries, every different cities every week. You know, tennis is much more global than golf in terms of the, with the tour. They don't have regional tours. Um, and so during the pandemic, having to negotiate new immigration laws or travel restriction laws every single week for tournaments, uh, for players who wanted to play the normal schedule on tour rather than making any sort of bubble like, you know, sports like NHL or NBA did in 2020 and having the tours sort of be able to stay in one place and, and play there longer and more and offer more stability and cut down expenses for players and do those sorts of things. I mean, there's lots of different ways you could blow it up. And also you could blow up pay structure and, and have it be a salary sport somehow. Maybe bonuses for higher rankings rather than just prize money. Um, teams. Yeah. Te- well, te- yeah, yeah. There have been some forms of teams, co- competitions that pop up occasionally in, in tennis. It's a question also, like, is tennis popular enough you know, to, to be able to sustain a, a, a footprint of more than one week a year in a given city market, you know, like maybe not. I think, I think you could make an argument that the Davis Cup's the worst team competition in the world. What's Why? that? Cause no, I don't understand how it works. Okay. Well, you don't understand tennis. You don't follow tennis. I understand. I've, I've followed, I've followed it at points <laughs> in my life. It's just confusing. Davis Cup is, it's Davis like, Cup has problems. The Davis Cup they recently reformed a couple years ago to now where it's sort of more of a World Cup uh, model see, where it's going to be, all right. in, in November, it's going to be a bunch of teams playing, uh, in the same place, uh, in Madrid. I think, I'm speaking still. of Davis Cup 15 years. No, but years you're right. Ago. Davis Cup, Davis Cup was bad because Davis Cup would basically have like, uh, an event every like three months. It'd be like the first round would be in February, yeah, then the it, quarterfinals in April, and then semifinals in September, and then the finals in November, and then you know the next first round would be in February again, like three months after the previous final. And it would it just sort of was always there. It was like paying like quarterly taxes or something. It just wasn't fun. It just sort of showed up. It never got any never kept any momentum as an event. It would sort of show up and then leave. Show up and leave. Um, yes, yeah, it's a big missed opportunity for for tennis there. Is there, is there a billionaire that could, that would be possible? A billionaire could like unite several of these tours and or even majors. Maybe Saudi Arabia could do if, it. If, well, uh, strike out, you with know, golf. like Larry Ellison bought the, uh, New Wells tournament and really poured a ton of money into it and made it the biggest ATP WTA tour level event. Um, it's take okay. a lot more money to buy, especially when talking like buying Wimbledon and those yeah. are, those are big ticket items. Um, and I, and also just like tennis buys have seemed so, reticent to give up any level of their autonomy. Everyone holds on to their, their piece of turf pretty pretty firmly. So okay. it's tough to know who that would be or, or what that would look like. And, and yeah, it would have to also be in the right. It would still be a big management challenge, even if there was unification to do it correctly. Um would be would be tough. Hey, last question, I promise. Okay. I've always wanted to go to a tennis tournament. I always get FOMO when uh, the US Open's going on. Um so, hey, What's the best major to go to? And what's the best regular event? Like, if I was going to just maybe happen to be in the same spot, what's the best, like, just non-major event that, that one should attend? Where do you live? I'm, well, I just, I don't, I don't consider myself a geography. Citizen anyway. of the world. He's in Chicago. Yeah. In Chicago. Okay. Well, I think Cincinnati is a great <laughs> tournament, honestly, to yeah. go to a tennis fan. Um, uh, pretty much any given year, all the top players play there two weeks before the U.S. Open. And it's a quarter of the price of the U.S. Open, and you can get to see all the big players playing and competing pretty hard in their last big warm-up event before the U.S. Open. Um, it's one of my favorite tournaments to go to on tour. Uh, and you can get good close seats and mingle with them on practice courts and stuff. I like, I like Cincinnati a lot. 
as an event. Is there is there like a trick of the trade? Is there like a good round to go to? Like I is I like, the, going, I like is, going early was, in the week generally, just because you see more players are still in it and you can bigger quantity of tenants and go to the outer courts and stuff and see matches. Is it first row about some matches you want to? Um, All right. That's generally my my strategy. Some people like seeing finals and stuff, but those can be. I like having a bigger quantity of, of play there, uh, just so you're not having all of your eggs in one basket match wise. In case like somebody sprains their ankle in the third game and stops the match and it's over, that, that's happened. That can be a bummer. I don't know. All right, weekend match. What about majors? The majors depend. I mean, I do think like Wimbledon's a great sort of bucket list kind of event. Like it's, it's, it's like Augusta. It's, it's, you know, or like Fenway, even people compare it to. Like it's very sort of special and got lots of character and history to it. Um, and so Wimbledon's, I think, a good, good pick for, for major. It can be tricky getting tickets. Um, but, uh, it's, I think it's probably the best destination major of them. All right, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. He, uh, you can find his work, listen to his podcast. I assume there's plenty of tennis enthusiasts among our, our audience. The No Challenges remaining podcast, search that, subscribe to that. You can read him at New York Times, at Racket Magazine. Uh, I'm sure this is sort of setting off a bunch of light bulbs, alarm bells, whatever it is, as we just listen to you sort of, uh, explain the world of tennis to us so so we really appreciate it i know it's not a, a direct overlap and it's kind of outside our normal type of conversation but we really appreciate it no worries thanks for having me brendan all so, right thanks ben thanks guys